Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. This is Shlomo Buxbaum here alongside my wife and co-host, Vara Buxbaum. Hi, everybody. I'm so blessed to be here. Thanks for having me on. We have today an absolutely incredible, mind-blowing episode for you that is different than anything else that we have done so far on this podcast. I would agree with that 100%. (laughs) Absolute mind-blowing. Typically on the podcast, we have focused somewhat on people's stories, but we like to really get into sort of their areas of expertise. But this podcast is different because our guest is... Aliza Bulo. She is a motivational speaker, a Jewish educator for over 25 years. She is the director of an organization called CORE, which she's going to speak all about. But this episode is her story. It's her journey because she has done so much in this life of hers. I I think what I really appreciate about this episode with Aliza is her extreme authenticity and vulnerability. I think in a way of her opening up her heart um, in such a real way, the listeners will feel so connected, not not only to her, but to her story and to all the different parts that her story offers. You know, we sat down with her several weeks ago before we're actually posting this podcast, and I thought that it would be appropriate to share it this time of year. We're in between Passover and Shavuot, and in a couple of weeks, it will be Shavuot, and we'll be reading the story of Ruth, of Rus, and her story of dedication to the Jewish people. And when you hear Eliza's story, you're going to experience that as well. Someone who was just dedicated to her quest, as she calls it, dedicated to her search. So it really is, it's, it's, it's a, a fascinating story, a story of social activism, of women's empowerment, of, of grief, of loss, of dealing with family members with mental illness. And there's so many lessons along the way. I mean, we literally, we could be laughing and crying at the same time mm-hmm, during absolutely. this interview. Uh, she was so, I mean, everything that she said was with humor and with a smile. I mean, it was light, but it was heavy all at the same time. So it was really cool. And uh, we're going to jump right into this episode with our guest, Eliza Bulo. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. This podcast is brought to you by the Lev Experience, that is the Greater Washington-based organization that Dvora and I founded and we are the directors of. And you can find out more about it on our website, levx.org. And you can reach out to us because we want to connect with you in more ways than just this podcast. Find us on social media, enjoy all of our content, and you can learn more about some of our classes that we give both in person, virtually, our coaching, and my book, The Four Elements of an Empowered Life, which I would love for you to have in your home, read it, and enjoy that as well. Please like this podcast, uh, leave a rating, leave a comment, and share it with your friends. Okay, welcome everyone. This is a great pleasure to be sitting here in our kitchen together with uh, my wife, Devora, together with the very wonderful Mrs. Eliza Bulo. Welcome to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thank this you for is, having yeah, me. Yeah, it's really exciting. This and, is so uh, exciting because Zoom has been unbelievable for this platform and I feel so grateful. But when you have the opportunity to actually look at someone 
in real life, real time, it's whole new level. That's right. We are real human beings right here. So this is real, as real as possible, post-pandemic. We say that we're (laughs) post-pandemic. Kind of, yes. Hopefully post-pandemic, depending where you are in the world or what neighborhood you are in Maryland. And (laughs) and, uh, we're here really uh, hoping to get into some very, very meaningful topics. So we know who you are, Lisa, but not all of our audience, not all of the listeners do. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your wonderful work today, and then we'll maybe go a little bit back in time and hear your story. Okay, sounds good. So what I do today is I support women who strengthen the Jewish people. And I do that through an organization that I run, through phone calls, through Zooms, through emails. But I basically spend the entire day supporting women whose job it is, whether formally or informally, to strengthen the Jewish people as mothers, as teachers, as guides, as Rebbitzins, wherever they are, if they're strengthening the Jews, I'm, I'm trying to hold them up. That's what I do. And I have an organization that does that. And the organization is? It's called CORE. Oh, CORE. CORE, strengthening the core of the Jewish people, which are the women. So how does CORE, how do you go about doing that? So CORE has three main branches. Branch one is circles. That's reweaving the social fabric of the Jewish people, creating micro communities out of women. Um, And we support the women who create those micro circles, those micro communities. So five to 10 women who get together on a regular basis every week, at least every month in real life offline to create connections with each other. And there's lots of pathways for them to connect through. The point is connection. The pathways could be learning, could be sports, could be crafts, could be singing. We give lots of ideas on how to create connections with women that are meaningful, that connect women with each other and with Hashem. Mm -hmm. So that's the circles. The second branch is creating communities of practice. So for women who serve the Jewish community in similar fields, we bring them together in communities and we provide professional support and development for them. So, for instance, we have close to 400 Kala teachers, bride teachers from 16 countries. And over the last two and a half years, we've offered close to 50 sessions of professional development for them. We have a community of over 300 women who serve in the Chabra Kedisha from 10 countries. And we do um, really moral support and spiritual support for them. Halakhically, they go with their, their communal guides and rabbanim, but just to create a space for them to seek support from each other. We have one for community Rebbitzins, one for Torah teachers, one for FFCs from female CEOs of Jewish non-for-profits. Whoa, that's like FFC, (laughs) NP. (laughs) We just call it the FFCs. And um, yeah, so for women who lead non-for-profits that serve the Jewish community, we have a community of practice for them. And um, anyways, that's branch number two, is bringing women together in communities of practice and giving them um, professional development in those spaces. And then branch number three is our um, mentorship branch where we train women to be deep spiritual guides for other women. So we have, we just graduated 36 women from five countries um, from a two year training program. And they're right now engaged in the six month extension program, which will ultimately be integrated into the next two year training program. So we are now recruiting for our next cohort of MMCs, Mashpia Mentor Counselors. And um, that's going to start after Sukkot. I have to remember a lot of letters yes, to get this program. It's, true. it's really true. But I'm really excited about this. I can't even tell you how amazing that group has been is. I mean, just such a beautiful diversity of women from Canada, Mexico, the UK, the US, Israel. Um, and it's a, it's fascinating, the diversity and learning each person's cultural paradigm as we all grow together as spiritual guides for other women. 
So. That is amazing. I just have to say, so uh, I grew up in Denver, lived there a lot of my life. And Aliza is also from Denver. And um, as a young, as a young high school student, even, I remember having the opportunity to be in your home, Aliza, sometimes even like helping your own daughters for their bat mitzvah. <laughs> um, but I just, um, it doesn't surprise me. And it feels so nice to see because Core is relatively new. When I was a high school student, had no idea that Core would be born. But it is really amazing because whenever I was in your home or whenever I would watch you, there was actually that feeling of you being such a strong Jewish pillar. And to see the work that you're doing and now helping other, you know, just Jews owning that and creating more pillars in our community is truly astounding. It's Thank truly you. astounding. I, I love what I'm doing. I started out in Kiruv, as you know. And um, whether I was teaching women really across the country or then I moved into teaching the women who teach women, I was the guide for so many Rebbitsons and I worked for Nirl Ella for 11 years, crossing the continent really, um, supporting women who teach other women. And, um, and I really, through each of their eyes, got to see their families, mm -hmm. their parenting style, their parents, their children, their siblings. And I realized, oh my gosh, these are the core of our community and they need strengthening. And so I really moved into that. And I love doing this today. Just love it. I think it's a really cool point. Did you find in all of your work that specifically people that are community leaders, did, did you feel like they were lonely or that they were losing steam? Like what, what was, what was at, the, at the crux of launching this? It's such a great question. I would say the crux is having been in Cure for a long time, I really feel like we were working so hard and and there is definitely beautiful results, but not the results I'd like to see from the effort that's expended. And I feel like inside the community, if we would be shining the light of the Torah brightly as we're supposed to, we're supposed to be a light unto the nations, right? So if we would be shining beautifully, then our, all of our own would want to stay in the community because why ever leave if we were warm and inspiring? So my, my goal is to create communities that are so warm that everyone born into them wants to stay and so inspiring that everybody else wants to join. It's fascinating. So tell me, what is it? What does a core success look like? And you can give an example of a practical, like something that really happened or just theoretical, you know, the listener who's listening, who, you know, they would be the quote unquote core you know, demographic and they're listening like, oh, course for me, you know, what, what does it look like for them? There's so many different demographics because we have our three branches. Just anyone. So anyone. I would say in the circles, a success is really creating in real life relationships. We are so focused online today and social media is it's we're we are so hungry for social connection that we eat social media, but it's like drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. So in our quest for social connection to really create that deep resonance of connection with others, we try so hard virtually to connect and, and we were just left hungrier and hungrier. So a core success is creating in real life relationships. Now I would say the 50 somethings have experienced that. Although a lot of the 50 somethings are moving today as whether they're moving into retirement or following children you know, as they approach 60 into new communities, leaving behind the social networks that they had, they need it for that to set up their new lives as newly empty nesteds. Um, the 35 and unders often haven't experienced a lot of that, maybe in high school, but in between high school and that, in that huge push to raise children or build a career, there's often not enough friendship energy. Mm -hmm. And it really, 
it hurts marriages when wives expect their husbands to be their besties. They need a best friend. Husbands are fantastic and they should be deep, a deeply intimate connection, but a woman needs best friends to create a different energy to allow her to be more present for that intimacy within their marriage. So I would say successes are women who are filled up. None of the circles are there as an obligation to attend. They fill a woman up so she has more to offer when she goes home in her marriage and, to, and in her parenting. And hopefully then in her community, she's a, a fuller person. So that would be a core success. And we've seen a lot of that, actually. It's particularly successful right now in the Hasidic world. Wow. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing I'm to loving watch. this. So I'm, I am a 35-year-old Hasidic woman, yeah. right? And now I'm out there and I'm... I have my husband that I'm my husband. so weird. It's my husband. Yeah, my husband, it's my my husband. husband right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the kids and I'm bringing them. Da, da, da. But inside, what's happening to me? Inside, I'm feeling empty. My husband doesn't really understand fully, right, what I'm going through. I need, okay. Right. Okay, now, so, so in the Hasidic world, there's an extra thing going on there, too, because for her, not only does she need that friendship circle, which she might have a little bit more depending on her engagement with social media, but what she maybe doesn't have where the core mentors come in for her, and we have Hasidic core mentors, is maybe she doesn't actually know that much about Judaism. Mm. I think we make a lot of assumptions based on outfits, how much people know about something. But it turns out that while there's a very strong social connection and commitment to being part of a community and not leaving it, there's not always a lot of knowledge about what is this whole thing about and, and is it really meaningful to me? So that's where some of the circles have really done some amazing work to bring women into a relationship with, with themselves, first of all, which has been a little bit more distant, and then with Hashem and with the Torah, where maybe they only learned a little bit in, in school. You're, you're pretty much trying to reach Esti from Unorthodox in that documentary. Yeah, so I did not watch that particular documentary, um, but, but I did, you know, you know but I did watch the, what was the other one that was the Netflix series. The, the, the recent one, My Unorthodox Life. Oh, that's one I didn't watch. I did watch. Uh, yes. Unorthodox, that one I watched. Esti, yes. That's the that Esti. Woman. That Esti. Yes. That is she's exactly. Like, she was exactly playing the her. role. She was doing the part, but she exactly. was dying inside. She exactly. Really her any fire. and her mother. That's It's her and her mother that we are reaching. And the college right teacher. Yes. 100%. Well. Now, Rose the college right. teacher. Yeah. The college teacher. That college teacher had some compassion and gave some support. But yes, we're reaching that college right. teacher, too. So You're that's reaching all the characters except for the men. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, some core circles have sprung up among the men okay. who said, I love what you're doing for the women. We want that too. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So take us back a little bit. So this is, this is fantastic, but there's, you have a, a beautiful, beautiful backstory. Tons, tons to talk about. So take us back because I'm not sure that you were born as the director of core. <laughs> so it's I think it was, a, it was a long journey to get here. So if you can take us back a little bit into the journey of your childhood and uh, some of those adventures. Right. Okay. I probably was actually born as a director of core. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it all. Okay. I was born into a family who um, was born in 1964. So it was the 60s and the 60s were as they were. And, um, and my father was a college professor who, well, when, when I was born, he was finishing his PhD and, um, <clears throat> so he became a college professor, but my mother lost her mother just after I was born and she lost her father just after my sister was born. So my mother was 26 with two little girls and no parents. And I think that 
I'm only understanding now more as a core mentor, as somebody who's gone through all this extra spiritual training to think about the impact of that loss on her as a mother, mm. as a daughter, first of all, and then how that affected her mothering um, and some of the decisions that she and my father made at that time and the loneliness that she was experiencing as a new mother with no parents and also her being out of sync with God at that time, angry with God for taking her parents at age 26. Um, and raising these two little girls while her husband is busy pursuing his career in a university. So, um, so that meant that there wasn't out of sync with the church. And, and so I was not born Jewish. Yeah. That's a minor detail, right? Mi minor detail. <laughs> I was not born Jewish. Uh, so my mother was out of sync with God and um, was not interested in a relationship in that sense. And my father was academic. And so he didn't need it, of course. Oh. Who needs that kind of thing? Um, but then as my sister and I got a little bit older, they both felt like probably they should just introduce us to Christianity as our cultural heritage. Um, and that's the language the country speaks. It's the, that's the paradigm through which many things are understood. And we should probably just understand it like from an academic perspective. Um, so, and they didn't really believe in the tenets of Christianity, but in the service of Christianity, they did. So they joined a house church at that time which is, I would say, very similar to a reform chavura. Met in, um, actually met in a finished basement. There was actually a minister of several families that got together. And um, it was very human potential movement oriented. Um, and so my parents, who were very service oriented, really found, I'd say, their spiritual calling, not in the church, but in civil rights. Um, and that really came to them very strongly. As my father did his postdoctoral work, one of the stops was in Washington, D.C., and they got to hear the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King speak. And that was a transformative moment for them where they both were galvanized towards, oh, my gosh, look at the injustice that's here, and we have the capacity to do something about it. And they threw themselves into it full force. And so as my father became a professor at the University of Rochester, he, his quest there was to really help black um, kids integrate into the university system. And he, he wrote a book called Making It in College with another professor, Marion Walker, and um, who was black. So they wrote about their diverse experiences achieving professorhood and then how to help black kids get in and stay in college. Um, and that was in the 70s, in the very early 70s. Um, but that was really the quest of my family at the time. We, they worked very hard on interracial living, desegregated housing. We moved into a neighborhood that was very integrated, partially by us moving there <laughs> into a very um, a neighborhood full of many different kinds of colors, but not that much white in it. Mm. And, um, and then I went to the schools of those neighborhoods, which was not the easiest experience for me. That's the truth. Right, right. Um, so that's why I say I was probably was born as the leader of CORE, just because I was born into a family where service was really important. And as I was thinking about it on the way over here today, I was born into a family that was full of chesed, loving kindness. I mean, really reaching out. And, and as a child, like we were very careful about all the boycotts, Cesar Chavez, we didn't eat lettuce, we didn't eat grapes, you know, like we, we didn't eat things that people were exploited to achieve. We had our own like we grew things and, you know, in our tiny little backyard in urban Rochester, cool. New York. But, but, but I had it already a, from a very young age, a real dedication to, to community work. So when you went into school and you obviously minority in the school, you saw yourself in that role in, even within your school. So maybe not as a five-year-old, although actually five-year-old, my first day of school was a teacher strike. So yeah, the first day I took a, a picket, I mean, I wouldn't never cross a picket line. So we, I, 
my mother took me to introduce me to my kindergarten teacher and put a sign in my hand and we walked the line with the teachers. Oh, wow. So that was the first day oh, of God. kindergarten. Um, so there is that, but it wasn't until 1974 when I was 10 that my father did not get tenure. And, um, and my parents decided to do a year long family field study of interracial neighborhoods and desegregated housing. So they got a grant from the Ford foundation and we traveled actually for a whole year. My sister was nine and I was 10 and we traveled for a year. We, we lived for a little while in Cleveland, in Baltimore, in Corona, California, and Portland, Oregon, studying different communities. And so at that time, I totally knew I was a field worker. Like I, that was very clear. And that was my mandate was to report on race relations in the schools. And even before that in Rochester, we were, we worked as a family. That was our Sunday activity was to go look at houses. But, and my sister and I were actors as my parents were, here's a white family with this income level and girls this age, please show us the houses that you think would be good for us. And then a black family would do the same thing. And if we got shown different houses, bring a lawsuit against the real estate firm. So, um, yeah. Oh, That's <laughs> so I knew as a little girl, that was my job. Cause I would go with my parents to see the houses. Like that was our job. We knew we were uncovering injustice in the world. Wow. So even as a little girl, like saying the pledge of allegiance, I couldn't say it. I had such a hard time. I've always been a very huge Dafkinik. I didn't have that word. How do you say Dafkinik in English? Because I am one. My parents called me in a little nod to my future, their New York lawyer. <clears throat> um, not that I'm a lawyer, but I think they probably meant like Jewish lawyers <laughs> <laughs> because I argued about a lot of things, but, um, but I always split hairs on words and to be able to, to stand there and say, I pledge allegiance to a nation where there's liberty and justice for all. And I knew there wasn't. You would have taken the knee. I couldn't. Couple. I don't know if I would have taken the knee, but I couldn't. I couldn't say the words. Right. Oh my gosh! I'm reading this like American Girl doll series to my seven year old right now, and I feel like you could be that doll. Like this, this girl. I, I don't know with, mm -hmm. with Rebecca. Like she, she also like she'd go to sleep, and I can't do this. You know, right. that, that's how that I felt. Yeah. 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 I was big into the like justice. It was a really important thing for me. Like I'll tell you one tiny little piece of justice that just galled me so much. At twelve, you have to pay as if you're an adult to go to um, to the movies, mm -hmm. but you can't see an adult movie until you're 17. Mm. And I thought that's so unfair. Yeah. Why do I have to, right? Why do I have to pay for the adult fare and I don't have the adult privileges? Like those kinds of things just drove me nuts. I think that bothered me also a little bit without the money piece of it. I think it just bothered me. I didn't get to watch the adult movies. <laughs> yeah, that's not what I cared about. I cared about like responsibility got and it, privilege and it. how they didn't line got up. It's really <laughs> similar, just not exactly. Anyway. <laughs> right. Wow. Okay. So that was your upbringing. Okay. So where does that, uh, so where does the Jewish journey okay, begin? Okay. Right. So it begins at 10 when I, when we came back from that trip, um, I decided I'm an atheist. I don't believe in this whole Christian thing. And, um, and I remember having, a, I, I had some difficult moments with my parents. Um, they would have called me a difficult child. Now I realize I was responding completely appropriately to experiences in my life. Nevertheless, there was a day when it was time to go to church and I refused. I was 10. And I just, I remember yelling and screaming, I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not going. And they said, and I was 10. That's like old enough to leave home, barely. So they left. So I said, I'm an atheist um, at that time. And except for I knew my rights, right? Like if I'm going to be an atheist, so then where do you get holidays, gifts, ceremonies, or anything fun from? So mm -hmm. I just said, there has to be a religion for atheists. Mm -hmm. So I looked around. Okay, I was 11. 
by that time. You were so young. I, I was 11. Remember. And there wasn't a religion for atheists. Like, how are they going to get a sense of meaning and purpose in the world? Okay. Right? So I couldn't find that. It was like, whatever, it was 1977. So, um, but I was the type that literally... If I could have smoked a clove cigarette and discussed philosophy in the village, I totally would have mm -hmm. at that time already. So I was busy reading Richard Bach, Jonathan Living Siegel, and like and the, the Messiah, and which was the Richard Bach's Messiah, Manifesting Destiny, and like all that stuff. And I was totally into that. And um, I said, I'm just going to make up my own religion. So I did with my girlfriend, Jenny, who made up Chelsea. Chelsea. I love it. <laughs> Jelsa Congregation of Jelsa. <laughs> right. And Jelsa was Jenny. And Elisa. That's Elisa. Elisa's Elisa, my English name. Sorry. Elisa, yeah, yeah. Jenny and Lisa. So By the way, I feel like we can just bring in a new demographic to our <laughs> listeners. Now it's Empowered Jelsa Podcast. Yeah, Jelsonians. Jelsonians, yes. Empowered Jelsa. So, right. So we had Jelsa cooking there between the two of us. But then my parents got divorced. Very nice divorce after that trip. Um, there's, oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So there was quite a bit more to that trip than I understood at the time because right. they were doing. There's lots of 1970 stuff that was going on inside that marriage, and then we ended up moving. Both of my parents, they got along very nicely. They're still like first cousins today. Very, still very nicely. Mm. It was not a messy divorce at all, but it was still a divorce and still like changed things in the world. So they both moved out to Portland from Rochester, New York to Portland, Oregon. So now I'm separated from Jenny. It was very hard to keep Jelsa. How old were you at this time? Twelve. Yeah. So I tried a bunch of other things from Scientology to psychic chance to healing to love chakra meditations. And right. anyway, by um, 14, I decided I do believe in God. I had like a meditative experience where I experienced God. And I thought that's so weird because I don't actually believe in God. But um, after that, I decided to look for a religion that had a God concept that would work for me. So I was a freshman in high school and I just went to the library there and started reading across the religion bookshelf. And I found the book To Be a Jew, among many others. I read others first, but just to make that long story short. And I read To Be a Jew, and I'm like, I am, this is it. I'm Jewish. I am home. And it was just so clear to me at 14. I didn't know any Jews at the time. <laughs> so I first had to find, you know, somebody Jewish to connect with. But I just knew from reading that book that I am home. Wow. How did you find that first Jew? Um, let's see. I had met Jews in the past, but I didn't know any at that time. And, um, it, so this is where Hashem just like reached. That's why I said, maybe I was born the head of core because Hashem reached into my life so many times, like putting that book on that shelf in a school where there were no Jews, not one, a big public school in Portland, Oregon, not a single Jew in the school, not even on the staff, but, um, there was that book there for me. And then Hashem arranged it also that my, uh, a, let's see. Uh, for another friend, everybody was divorced at the time. So my friend, bought, she was living with her father, mother in a different state. She's going to this performing arts high school that I'm going to. And her father's going off to Indonesia to do six months of research on Indonesian music. She wants to stay in the school. So he parks her with a neighbor lady. That neighbor lady is Jewish. So when I visit my friend, it's this Jewish lady's house. Wow. And I'm like, you're Jew? Jewish? <laughs> I have all these like questions. Today. There's no social media. No, there today. wasn't. So I had all kinds of questions. Like well, she said, well, I just, maybe I, I just, I don't know everything, but I can answer something for you. So I asked her a few different questions and reformed conservative and orthodox. What's that? So she explained it to me. She said, orthodox are those Jews who are lost in like the annals of history in a dusty kind of religion. Reform are the Jews who hardly do anything. Conservative is the golden middle path. 
And she told me she goes to a conservative synagogue and not all the time, but occasionally. And if I would ever like to go with her, I'm invited. So I said, great. How about this week? And so um, I went that week with her and every week thereafter for the next year and a half. I just, I loved it. Okay. Yeah. So this is really, this, there's so much right over here. So many things I want to ask you. I guess the first thing is just on the last thing that you said. Um, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that someone, you, this was a genuine search. You were really genuine looking search. for spirituality and you had explored a lot of things. You went to that first synagogue. And again, this is not to speak about conservative reform or any, anything, but but often people, no matter what synagogue they find themselves at first, I would say that I've seen often people that are on that real spiritual search can be disappointed the first time they come to the synagogue because they're not always the most spiritual places. Right. Okay. So let me ask you this. First of all, how old are you? 35. Oh my gosh. I'm, how old am I? Right? Right. I'm, like, yeah, I'm, like, I'm like 80 right, right now. Right. So it's I'm like 39. 80. Right, yeah. right, right. So this was in 1978. So before you were born when the conservative movement was actually very strong. Okay. And um, so they had a full youth program. They had, they had minion every day, three times a day. Um, they had, of course, Shabbos and Shabbos programs, and they had a full adult ed program and a summer camp. Mm -hmm. So it was a very active shul with room for me, meaning I got there and maybe it wasn't everything spiritual I was seeking yet, but I didn't even know yet because it was a full plate and mm -hmm, I couldn't mm -hmm. even digest it all. I right away signed up for the youth program, right? So I, first of all, I was a madricha for the younger kids. So I became a counselor in young Judea. And then there was a special rabbi's teen circle. So I joined that teen circle. I was the only one from my high school in that circle. It was all public school kids. There was no Jewish, there was a Jewish K through eight in Portland at that time, but no high school. Um, but I was it. And then since I was 14 turning 15, I was old enough to go to all the adult ed programs too, if I sat nicely, right? So I signed up. adult movies, but you got But I signed classes, up for every right? single class that anybody offered in that synagogue. Wow. So you I, were finding it. You were I finding what you were looking for. I loved it. I loved it. And the more I learned, the more I loved it. And the rabbi saw me just drinking it up. And I told him I want to convert. And he's like, that's very nice. But no, you're 15. I'm like, what do you mean? I've been... I have made a decision as a full adult, sentient and ready to take this on. It's like, yeah, very nice, but you could keep coming to classes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was very frustrated by that. But um, then that summer I went to Camp Solomon Schechter and I learned about Shabbat and Kashrut, like really in action to see it, how it works. I'd heard about it, but nobody I knew kept it except for the rabbi. But in camp, I saw how it works. Like you just have like Kool-Aid with dinner instead of milk. We always drank milk with every meal. Like, here you just drink like bug juice and that makes half your dinner kosher. Like it was so much easier to see how that works. So I came home, I started keeping kosher, separating meat and milk, not fully. Your parents are okay with this? And my parents, you know, had been on this like journey already. Right. They were like, whatevs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I paid oh, for camp. You paid for camp? <laughs> I raised, I earned that money. Yeah. I, I worked full time for the summer and I had enough money. I went oh to camp my myself. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was me. Um, yeah, because they were busy. So here's one thing I learned about divorce, besides the fact that it changes your home life and other people get introduced into your life, step parents or whatever. But another thing that gets introduced into your life is your parents' quest to become themselves who they need to be at that stage and make a new relationship with somebody else mm. that doesn't include you, the teenager Aww. who needs parenting. So, so on the one hand, oh, for sure, very sad. And I see that now much more as I work with 
children of divorced parents who are divorcing, etc. But on the other hand, I had the exact perfect parenting experience, being parented experience, because I did not get enough and I got just enough. So I got just enough to launch me on a path of, of increased capacity to seek meaning and do it on my own and not enough that I needed to go on that path. So it was, it was great. I got tools and quest at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think about myself today, look, they're not so involved in my life today. What, what would I do if they really were? Like I'm very serious rabbits in the world at this point. And if I had two non-Jewish, very involved parents, I would never have become the person that I am today. Mm-hmm. So it was exactly, exactly right. Well, I'm loving this. I, I wish, you know, most of our listeners are 20s, 30s, 40s and above. We don't have tons of teens listening to this, but I wish they they, they did because there's something so beautiful just about this journey of like you're a teen and you're doing it all on your own without the Internet, without Google, without everything. <laughs> and just sort of like, you know, jumping from place to place, finding like what's the next clue? What's the next uh, door open? How long did it take till you actually converted? So I pushed and finally, as I turned 16, the rabbi felt that once I was 16, that would be okay. So shortly after my 16th birthday, mm-hmm. I got to go to the mikvah. And then of course the next goal, bat mitzvah right away, oh, wow. conservative synagogue. So I sat with a cantor who made me a tape. That's how I learned to daven. Of course, when you learn to daven from the Ahmed, it's just the beginnings and the ends of a lot of different things, right. not the middles. Right. It's a little bit easier. <laughs> but I, but I learned that, uh, memorized the whole thing. And, um, and I, I had a bat mitzvah that summer, which was just like, and that's where I think my parents, that's where my worlds collided for the first time. It's like my parents, like I had my whole own world in, in the synagogue where I was like a questing teen and the adults loved me. I was beloved, especially by the older adults. Like here's a kid who's thirsty for what their kids are not thirsty for. Mm-hmm. And I was so thirsty. And I especially loved the old men, the millionaires, they were called. Aww. They were so nice. They loved me and I loved them. And I would dab and um, with them in the mornings and, um, on the side, cause I didn't have a pizza for that minion, but, um, I just loved that group of older men and I was their darling. And it just was so nice to be in a space where I was the darling instead of at home where I was one of the, my father got remarried and one of the six kids of that household and everybody's mm-hmm. busy. Like, so, but then my parents came to the synagogue for, for my bat mitzvah and they like, so, oh my gosh, she's like, of an alternate universe (laughs) she knows this language and she knows these people that we don't know that we don't have any relationship with and all these adults like yeah i I had created been such a strange experience (laughs) oh my gosh yeah it was like she's legit she's actually been doing this so tell us the next level because i know that the conversion journey probably wasn't over yet because you still had a you know it was a conservative conversion. Yeah. The next level was off to Israel because as I was working on bat mitzvah, I was going to Israel. So I, I wanted to go to Israel for my junior year of high school, which I did manage. Also arranged all that myself. Um, I mean, my parents gave me the, the you could do it. The but blessing. They gave me the yeah. blessing and they gave me the, the vision because my mother was an exchange student when mm. she was a junior in high school. So I had heard lots of stories of Greece growing up where she went to, to Greece. So um, I knew I wanted to go somewhere. So um, it was a question between Africa or Israel. And as I became more Jewishly involved, it was clear that it was Israel. So I did arrange to go to Israel and um, I chose a high school program and um, had it all arranged and ready to go. When the rabbi came back from his um, trip to Israel, his summer trip, he got six weeks off every summer 
as rabbi. Totally worked that out. Guys, yeah. whoever's on a board of a Jewish institution, give <laughs> your rabbi yeah. six paid weeks in the summer to go to Israel with his family to rejuvenate so he can give you more during the year. So he did that. Um, anyway, he came back from his trip and he told me, I checked out the school that you're going to and it's not for you. Um, and he told me why. And he brought my parents into the office. It was the first time we sat with two parents, rabbi me. And he explained how when there's so many great programs after high school, but not so many good high school programs. And he really recommends I wait. But it was three weeks before I was going. And I was like, no way I was waiting. I was ready. I like earned the money for that ticket. I arranged with the schools. I was ready. I was ready to go. So, um, but I also heard what the rabbi had to say. So, and meanwhile, that summer I had read Chaim Potek's The Chosen, where I learned the important word new. New, yeah, new. And yeshiva. A place where men learn holy books. And I thought, oh, I so want to do that. I want to sit and study the holy books. I want to know what's in there. You know, and that probably that was the follow-up. Like I got to the synagogue, but I that was like a portal. It's like going through I loved the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a child, all the Chronicles of Narnia. But walking into that synagogue was like walking through the wardrobe, like, look, there's a whole world here. Mm -hmm. But I need a road map. And I knew a yeshiva would give me that somehow. Mm -hmm. So, um, but they're only for men. So, um, then as I sat and spoke with the rabbi, he, and he told me not to go to this high school, but where else might you go? And I should wait. I said, I'm not waiting. I'm for sure going. He said, okay, what's your quest? I said, to learn more about Judaism. He said, great. And I said, no, I don't even need high school anyway. Like I'm a good student. I can graduate in three years. Like, let me just, I could skip instead of skipping my senior year, I'll skip my junior year. Let me just go. Great. So he said, okay, so there's two ways you could either go to a religious kibbutz and, and pick it up along the way. You'll just work there for the year. Or you can go to a woman's yeshiva and study it. I was like, there's women's yeshivas. <laughs> That's yeah. what I want to do. So off to Bravender's I went and I loved it. Loved it. And I knew there's no turning back. Wow. Once I was there, that was it. Like I just, I knew right away as soon as the plane touched down in Israel, like that, like I am home and I am never leaving. I had to go back a few times, but what happens with this whole growing up as being the social activist and, and, and which is really the passion that got you on this journey, but now you're entering now into like this orthodox yeshiva world where obviously that's a value, but that's not the value. So right. now kind of as a liberal kid, you know, who's trying to save the world who won't even pledge allegiance to the U.S. <laughs> and now you're literally coming in to this place, the Orthodox, which has all of the stereotypes of being totally, I mean, and a lot of people that we deal with also that might be coming from that world and want to find an entry place into uh, Judaism and especially observant Judaism, they see that as a barrier to those values that they're coming from. Right. So I did not see that as a barrier at all because I wasn't actually coming that way. I was coming looking for the ultimate meaning and purpose and social activism was about that. What My end goal wasn't to be a social activist. Okay. That was the process towards ultimate value and meaning in the world and how can I find it and exercise it to the best of my capacity. Okay, so take us now into sort of this next phase of your life. So now you complete the learning process, you complete the conversion process, now on to building a family, uh, did you know you want you were going to be a Rabbitson? Was that like clear to you going? <laughs> no, in? finding um, a husband, yeah, finding a husband, all that stuff. Well, so first, completing conversion process, okay, that's fine. But then the next one was like, how am I going to stay in Israel, and what will I be doing? And it became very clear. I mean, long story short, but that I needed to serve the country in some way, so Sherat Lumi or the army. And I decided army because um, I knew Sherat Lumi was 
I, I came to learn more about Israeli culture and saw there's this big divide between the religious and the non-religious. And that's where my community activism kicked in. Like, how can I help bridge this gap? Um, and I'm going to be an Israeli. So I need to figure out how to be part of the society. And also right now at 18, bridge this gap. So national service or the army, I decided if I became from in a, in a performing arts high school with all that goes with that from whoever knows there's lots that goes with that then likely i could stay from in the army in israel so um so that's what i did i joined the army in israel and it was specifically to help bridge that um pair chavarti as they say that 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 communal gap um and it really has made a difference until this very day i thought it was making a difference at that time but i see it's it's lasted me my whole life. Mm -hmm. Anytime somebody tries to dismiss me, oh, you're just a religious, like whatever, you know, and in Hebrew, I could say, like I, I served in the army and people are like, what? You what? Mm -hmm. So um, makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And I also learned a ton about Israeli society and, and politics and not that I follow it all now, but it just, it was created a whole different adulthood for me. And it was, that was about community growth and development, which continued as I came back to the States and, I had started in high school anyway, um, fighting for the freedom of Soviet Jews. And I worked hard in college and back in the States to memorize all the statistics and lead the, I was the president of the Jewish student union at um, Hunter college. And we led marches and protests to Washington DC and then spoke to congressmen and all that stuff. And, um, and when I got married, that's where that activism, that's where yes. it kicked in. Yeah. Yes. And then when I married my husband, God should bless him. He's fabulous, wonderful, terrific man. So cute right now. With a little Shout mustache, out to Ephraim. Little mustache and suspenders. Yeah. You know, I can't even believe I'm married to a grandfather. He's so cute as a grandfather, <laughs> but he was cute back then too. And, um, and we were definitely focused on doing chasa together, like just being loving, kind people. So we started in the Beaker Holim, visiting the sick and Sloan Kettering, in Manhattan, we did that um, almost, his mother started that Beaker Holom, that was KJ's, um, Keyleth Jeshen's special um, mitzvah of visiting sick people who had cancer. And my husband and I would go many Shabbos mornings to visit um, sick people in the hospital. And then we decided since we were not making Aliyah, which I so wanted to get back to Israel, but it was impractical with my husband's law degree. So we decided we have to start our marriage with a mitzvah. So we decided to go to Russia and wow. visit refuseniks. So that's what we did. Oh, wow. Oh, so, wow. Um, just that so. just boring old story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So... So at that time, we did not know that there were organizations that would have paid for a trip. But wow. that's what we spent our wedding money on it, which was a great investment. Which is yeah. even more inspiring. I mean, oh it was. Because we just, we, we went and, yeah, and it was, and we brought in Jewish things and we had a story for each thing. We were coached before we went, like why we had to have a story for each thing, why we needed that Jewish thing. It was still during the Soviet Union. So of, of course we both put on tefillin. So we both needed two pairs, right? So we explained, so we could explain to them why. Two? Yeah. Two. No, no, that's two is the legit amount that you put yeah. on two. So for both of us, we brought in a shofar, we brought in the Steins Gemara, we brought in things that were asked for, mm -hmm. um, but we had to have a story for each, each and everything. Yeah. So that we were questioned about each thing. Yeah, yeah. I had never experienced a lack of freedom of the press or freedom of speech or freedom of assembly. And in Russia, they were all not there. And just going to Russia as a 21 year old newlywed and look and meeting refuseniks and, and seeing what it's like to live a life of fear all the time. And, and the and courage and never, the bravery, the courage, the bravery, and to never be able to count on anything that 
anybody says anywhere and the difference between hard currency and rubles just I, I just I mean, we spent two and a half weeks there and I came back a transformed person that understood the importance of America and and its culture and and what it's brought to the world. Yeah, I had no especially because I missed those two years of high school because right. I, I missed both. I didn't graduate high school. I, I got a GED, so I never got American history. I didn't get the end of high school. So I didn't get like those civics and things that you get in the 1970s that back in the day, I didn't get that. So um, I just, this was that, <laughs> like, I really came to appreciate America and what America has to offer. Yeah. The world and how important it is. Some of the stories, um, Rabbi Riskin writes a lot about his trip here. It's in his book, a lot about his trip to the Soviet uh, Union and what he saw over there and how Jews risked everything to do their mitzvot. And then there's another book called To Remain a Jew by Rabbi Yitzchak Zilber. Zilber, I think. Also, just the things that he did to rap, to fill in every day in university, hiding behind right. doors, pretending to pr read a newspaper when he's really praying. I mean, just crazy things that they did. Right. It's just, it is hard to imagine the level of commitment that collectively we have as a Jewish people for the last 3,300 years that has manifested in different people in different ways to bring us all to this place. I mean, if you're Jewish and listening to this right now, that means that there's 3,000, a little more, 3,300, I think it's 32 years since the giving of the Torah, that your family has physically survived and spiritually chosen in at every point. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing, yeah. it's an amazing double set of miracles that brought you to this place to identify as Jewish to this day. And if you're converted in, that means that you're a carabiner clip, you know, like a clip, the kind of clips, it's a, still a link in the chain, but it's a link that has a clip in it that you can just click onto a, somebody else's chain. You could never have converted if there wasn't somebody to click your link onto to like see from Sinai. It's just, it's an amazing amazing capacity to bring it forward from that time till today. Sure. So for our last segment together, and there's so much in each of these pieces, and I'm sure that at the end we'll talk about where people could learn more about every single segment of this. But I'm thinking now that like, you know, it's the the, the Torah, Rashi says it, the story of, of, of Jacob, of Yaakov, that he went through all these adventures in his life to build his family, to go through and to run away from home and run away from his brother Asa who wanted to kill him and then build a family and have an father-in-law who also wanted to kill him and finally gets back to Israel and he's like, the, the, the major says, he just wanted, he said, okay, I, I went through the journey, now just serenity for the rest of my life. And that's when the real challenge starts. Serenity now! Serenity and now, exactly. later, right? <laughs> so you, you, you go through this journey and you do the conversion and, 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 and yeshiva and another conversion and you're married and you're building a family and you go to Russia and you're becoming a Rebetzin and, you know, you're teaching classes. And I know you didn't share that, but I know that right. also at the time you start teaching classes. OK, so this now at this point, really, we should be saying thank you all for joining us in the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. <laughs> this is an amazing story. But. I don't, I guess this was probably not uh, the most difficult thing you had to endure in your life. So maybe you can share with us. All that stuff wasn't even <laughs> difficult. <laughs> <laughs> share with us a little bit about the, the pain that you had to endure and, and uh, what you learned along that journey. Right. So I, I learned, okay, so what is a nisayon, a test? So um, I first had, I was very lucky to meet my husband. I was 19 years old, no nisayon there, and he's Fabulous, no nisayon there, and we right away had two children and no nisayon there. 
So a girl and a boy. That boy then started to like, ADD was a new thing. And he started to manifest these things. And it was a challenge. And I learned the word Nisayon from my Rebbitson at that time, Tila Yeager. And, um, and she told me it was a Nisayon. Then my father came to visit and he hardly ever did. He's like, what is going on with this child? And I said, well, it's a test. He said, well, what do you get if you pass the test? <laughs> I was like, that's a great question. <laughs> By the way, that is the question that everybody always asks. Like, okay. How do we know we pass and what do we get when it's over? Exactly. Right? <laughs> so I went back to ask her then. She's like, okay, I learned then over the years. It took me a long time to learn this because he was just the opening. <laughs> you want to talk about the wardrobe. He was the door to a whole new world of Nisyanot. Um, and um, what you get if you pass the test is you. You don't pass. You become more of who you need to be. You become more capacious, more sensitive, more. You develop your tools for functioning in this world. And when you do that, you get another test on the other side of that. Because I feel like some people can feel like I can never catch up. I feel like I see Hashem in front of me as the loving father saying to a toddler that's learning to walk, come on, come on, you could do it, you could do it. And and as Hashem moves further and further away, as that father moves, it's only for the toddler to take another step forward and another step forward. And even if you fall, you get up and you take another step forward until you really, you can manage. So I that's how I see Nisiona from Hashem. Tests from Hashem are, okay, I see I see capacity, and but I'm not seeing it being manifest. So you know what? I'm going to give you a workshop. I'm going to design it for you at your level right now. And let's go. And sometimes you take a look into that workshop when he opens the door and says, interested, want to sign up? And you're like, ah, no. <laughs> and Hashem just pushes you from behind. And there you go, falling into that workshop. So um, I started out with kids with some learning challenges and ADD and attention and stuff and, and, some, and then some depression and, and then a child who was suicidal. And from a very young age, that was number six child, not number two child. And, um, and, and I had been through a lot with the other kids, a lot. And, um, and each time it was just to bump me up and bump me up. And, but I felt like with Donnie, who was delicious, I just, he was an enigma wrapped in a question mark surrounded by a mystery, <laughs> just like just question marks and question marks and question marks. And no amount of parenting experience that I had gained from any other child in any other realm helped me figure this child out. And and not only that, but everybody around me was saying, oh, you're just covering for him. He's really, he's this, he's that. Like it's poor parenting. It's poor boundaries. Oh, no. It's poor. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. Ouch. So, um, yeah. So, um, and I knew there was something wrong with this kid and I, but I didn't know what it was. Um, there was definitely depression and he was medicated from a very young age and he was suicidal from a very young age. I mean, he had suicidal ideation. He would tell, we lived in Long Beach, Long Island. And he would look at the ocean and say like, I just want to walk into the ocean and keep on going. Oh, I just want to walk into traffic. Like he was so clear. Like, I don't want to be here. I didn't ask to, and he would say, I didn't ask to come and I don't want to stay. Um, and there were harder times and easier times and, and, it be, and clearly depression, but then it turned out it's actually, it was bipolar because it swung into anger and depression and testiness and, and deliciousness. I mean, he was fantastic and challenging and scary and wonderful and petrifying and difficult and fantastic and all mixed. So, um, yeah. And we talked about suicide as he lived and as he thought about dying and his whole life and he became an atheist and, and he was so sensitive. One time we were, I was in Michael's with him and he said, uh, I'm just going to go to Panda Express next door and get some food. I'm like, 
why are you telling me that you said, oh, does it bother you that I'm eating that kosher? I'm like, yes, it bothers me that you're eating that kosher. He said, well, what should I say? I said, just tell me you're going to meet me back in 15 minutes. That's all. Just say, Ima, I'll meet you in the B dial in 15 minutes. That's all you need to say. I was like, okay, okay. Then he thought for a minute. He's like, Ima, I'm just going to go. I'm going to meet with a rabbi for a few minutes. I'm going to get my t-shirt checked for shotness. <laughs> I'll be back in 15 minutes. I'm like, great. So that became our code word after that. He's like, I need to just get my shirt checked for shotness. I'll be right back. It's like after the meal on, on Shabbat afternoon, I always tell her, I said, I'm just going to go upstairs just because I need to do really important learning and reading upstairs exactly. when it's really like, exactly. I'm taking that. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. So that's what he did. Shabbat is a special mix by the way, that you're supposed to check your garments for a mix of uh, wool and linen. So that's right. something we have done, yeah. Right, right. So he, so that's, that was, and this, of course, a t-shirt never needs to be checked because it's cotton. It's right. neither wool nor linen, <laughs> right. right? So that was the joke is that I'm just going to go get my shirt, my t-shirt checked for Shabbat. Um, so he, he was a loving and challenging child, both. Um, but he did, he did end up taking his life at 19 and he did it in a way actually that, um, I mean, I could, there's whole long things and that's, this is not the time to go into it, but just, I felt like he did it in a way to take care of me because he asked me, you know, he said, Ima, I am going to, I am going to take my life. So what's your preferred method when I do, what's your preferred method? He also had Asperger's. <laughs> Which you can see here is that like Aspie question, like, cause he was so clear about it. Like just clear eyed, like, okay, he just wanted to discuss with me. What's my preferred method for when he does this. So I said, don't, but I, can, I can't tell you a preferred method, but I could tell you my least preferred method. And I asked him not to shoot himself or hang himself. Cause I just, I couldn't bear finding that. Yeah. So he swallowed poison and I knew in the swallowing of the poison that that was a nod to, this is going to be easier to find. So, which I did. So yeah. So I, and, and, and I do know, I, I'm sorry to, to yeah. interject, but I do, I have heard you also speak about how he also made sure to sort of close a lot of different, he did, um, he did close a lot of closures relationships. He yeah. did. Yeah. Which of course I didn't see at the time. I've learned a lot more about suicide since then, but not that I would have seen it if I would have known those things necessarily. I mean, and he was on a suicide watch anyway, like it just, he perked up so much. Like you know, we exhaled and let our guard down just to drop for those few weeks. Um, but I would say, so like that shortly after he died, somebody said, we actually have a foster son also who got married the day that he died. Um, Avram Rahimov also a beautiful neshama. We have a foster son and a foster daughter. They've given a lot of attention to over the years. So, um, so, um, we had to, we were making Shabbos Shepherd Brachot for him, of course, after his wedding, which we didn't get to go to because we were instead burying Donnie. And then, of course, we couldn't make that Shabbos Shepherd Brachot because that was Shabbos Shiva. So, but the rabbi told us that we needed to go to that Shabbos Brachot because there's no external signs of mourning on Shabbos. So, even though it was our Shabbos Shiva, we went to the Shabbos Brachot. Oh. I know. So, we get up from Shiva, light Shabbos candles. Then there happened to be a car accident right in front of our house that second after I lit candles. So there's like extra adrenaline. And then we walked across the street for a Shabbat Brachot. And I walked in the door, it's like an ashen face. And, um, and the person who was hosting said, wow, I bet this is like the hardest thing you ever did. And I, all I could do is nod. And I thought later on, I thought, no, like losing Donnie was the saddest thing I ever did, but raising him was the hardest thing I ever did. Raising a mentally ill child who's seriously mentally ill. It's so hard. It is so hard. I grew a lot from it. I would not trade it. I wouldn't, 
somebody told me, look, this is how you know you've like worked through whatever it is. You wouldn't pay a dollar for the service ahead. But after you've gone through them, if you've incorporated them, you wouldn't sell them for any wow. amount. Wow. And I would never sell it. Yeah, I would never sell it. I just, like, he was a, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so thankful for him in my life. Mm-hmm. And it's sad. It's for sure sad. And also he was re- like, I don't know, I was able to, right before he died in the hospital, when they couldn't bring him, like, you know, couldn't give an antidote. But I, I was able to hold his hand and kiss him and just say, like, you, you got your wish. Like, it's not, well, it wasn't my wish, but it was your wish. Mm-hmm. And your wish is coming true. And, um, yeah, I was glad to be with him in that moment. So what are the, what are you, I'm sure that there are certain like mindsets or affirmations or thoughts or principles that you hold on to. My guess is was that you probably developed that you were prepared yeah. with, that you, yeah. you, you, to, that you were able to bring into that moment to try to cope with that. What are, what are some of those? Well, cope with that and a million other things for sure. So I would say one of the first things, um, one of the, so there's definitely Amuna. So let, I'll tell two sides of that. One is a phrase that I say regularly is a doshem leave below irash. Shem is with me and I will not fear, which is the end of Adon Alam. But really that whole paragraph of Adon Alam is very meaningful to me because it's, I'll place myself in your hands, Hashem, my soul and my body. When I'm awake and asleep, when I'm conscious, I'm not conscious. And Hashem is with me. I don't have to fear. That's the translation of it. So it's one, th- a lot of people like trust Hashem with their spiritual life, but do they with their physical life? Like, so physical and spiritual, I'm in your hands, Hashem. Like what, a, and I realize life doesn't last forever. So however long it lasts, it lasts, but there's an eternal life afterwards. So I'm totally in your hands, Hashem. Like I just, I could relax into knowing that you've got this and I don't have to worry about a thing. So that has helped me a lot. Just a dosham leave a lawyer out. There's nothing I have to be scared of. Nothing. Because there's nothing that can happen outside of the plan of Hashem. Nothing. So that's a trust in Hashem. But then the second Muna is really Hashem's trust in me. It's so important to realize. And I think this is a beautiful thing that distinguishes Judaism from many other religions of the world, certainly from the one that I came from. So the dominant Christian idea is you're born a sinner and you need to be saved. And all you can do is hope for salvation. Whereas in Judaism, you're born gorgeously pure, empowered, and capacious. And it's your job to work towards building yourself into the best person you can be. And it's not just a hope, it's a mission. So, and I feel like that's, for me, that's huge. I'm very mission oriented. It's like, I'm not just hoping, I hope Mashiach will come. In fact, when I first converted, I decided when the Messiah comes, I'm not going to believe in him because (laughs) I don't want to be Christian again. I want to stay Jewish. Like I finally got out of this and I'm not going back. Um, I did not understand the Mashiach concept yet at that time. But now I feel like for me, it's not a hope. It's a mission. And, And a better world is not a hope. It's a mission. I'm on a mission from God. And, and I, it's my job to work on this. It's not my job to solve the whole thing because I don't get to do that, but I get to work on it forever. And I love doing that. And Hashem's going to decide when I should stop working on it. That's when my life will be over. And then I'll, uh, then I'll just be a neshama. But while I'm a neshama and a goof together, a body and soul together, so I can tap into that, like, just like, this is what I have to do today in this moment is just become a bigger person than I was yesterday. Just reach and reach and reach and grow and grow and grow and help other people grow too. That's what I do. 
and that attitude just you just keep going with that and yeah it just it fills you up it does it's unbelievable it does i'm sitting yeah. here with elisa i'm like shaking you know i'm crying <laughs> i'm like feeling and she has this gorgeous smile on her face there is such an ever calming presence and i <laughs> i have no words it's like unbelievable she lives with this friend <laughs> lives this it's been such a gift in my life i mean i'll tell you one of the ways that I work on the becoming bigger is I, I say that verse, Hashem, please open up my mouth that my lips should say your praise. Open my lips that my mouth should say your praise, right? But in Hebrew, it's open up my lips, but the word for lips, safa, means the edge or a border or a boundary, like sfatayam also. It's the edge the or the border of an ocean or a river. So I just say it, Hashem, when I say that verse, which is not, we say it before we say um, the standing silent prayer, but you could just say that verse by yourself too and just say like, Hashem, this is all I am. This is it. The whole package is right here in front of you and it's not big enough for the job at hand. So Hashem, please open up my borders or my boundaries and help me flow to places that I've never flowed to before because I, I need to be bigger than this like to handle what's in front of me. But don't let that flow be messy, please, Hashem. Like, yeah. Help me direct it towards your service. Like, you know, like I, the whole thing, I have to be expanded and then directed. So, uh, so I say that pasuk a lot, that verse a lot. Like, just please expand me and then direct me, um, so that my life should be in your service. But I need to be bigger than this. This is not enough for that. So. I feel like that's that's your that's who you are. Expansion, but direction. That's like your whole story. Yeah. And that's the Jews, right? When when Hashem said to Abraham, Lech lecha, Lech lecha, leave behind all these three things. Leave behind your father's house. Leave behind your birthplace. Leave behind that which gives you identity. I'll make your name great. I'll bless you. I'll be there for you. But the end of that is v'hayi bracha. So we really could say lech lecha v'hayi bracha. Go towards yourself. Who are you as a Jew? A bracha. Expansion. Not a blessed. A blessing. Right? And that's what bracha is. It means expansion. So that's why I try like Hey, bracha to be an expander, expanding expander. That's wow. what I'm trying to work on. So, just a, a final question over here. So, now if you can just speak directly to our listeners, because I'm I'm imagining, and I always like to think about like what are the listeners thinking. And if I'm listening, number one, perhaps I'm thinking like, wow, like what a journey, what a story. My life is so lame. <laughs> you know, how do I apply? You know, like what? You know, how how does this? How does this apply to the listener? But on the other hand, I think that every listener listening to this is also thinking like, I also have my own, you know, I have my own stuff, yeah. I have my own struggles, I have my own ups and downs. So what is the overall, uh, if you had to put, I don't want to call it a bow on the story, but if you had to say, if you had to put like a direct message to the listeners, what they can take away from your story, what you learned along the way, and apply it to the things that we're all going through, all of our ups and so, downs. So I'll give you my little bow then. Um, it's a joke and a bow. So I learned to stop second-guessing Hashem. Because Hashem's got this. He totally knows what he's doing. So here is one of my favorite jokes. What is the difference between Hashem and a Jew? Hashem knows everything. And a Jew knows better. <laughs> right? I was wondering, what can possibly be the punchline here? Okay. But a Jew totally thinks they know better. Like, with the, And that's half of our prayers right. is, I know better. Like, Hashem, you made that person sick and you shouldn't have. And that person is single and they shouldn't be. And that person is poor and they shouldn't be. And that there's a war over there and what are you thinking? Right? What are you thinking, Hashem, to allow such a thing to happen? Right? So we're constantly, we for sure should be davening. Well, I came to this one day while I was davening because of the Iran nuclear 
um, problem. And I thought, you know, Hashem, we, we don't even have bunker buster bombs that can get to the plant that they have inside a mountain. So what I suggest you do, Hashem, <laughs> is create a nuclear explosion that will flatten the mountain on the plant and the scientists. So the plant is gone. And so is the intellectual capacity to rebuild. And I'm explaining this to Hashem when all of a sudden I stopped in my tracks and thought, what are you doing? <laughs> Giving Hashem advice? <laughs> He's got this. So I just, but he wants to hear from me, right? Wow. He doesn't need me, but he wants me. So, so I just changed my tefillos. I changed my prayer to Hashem. You know what to do. Could you please do it? Yeah. So, yeah. So Hashem, you know what to do. And I'm thankful for everything you've given me in my life. All the challenges and all the blessings and all the challenges are blessings. They're just, they're all invitations. That's how I see it. They're all invitations to step forward. So, and I'm thankful for that. Hashem's got this. Wow. This has really been incredible beyond. I'm sure that a lot of the listeners will want to learn more. There's so many different pieces that we prop, so many stones we didn't turn They're over. Sure. So. I know there are many dozens. So, um, uh, where can we direct people if they want to learn more about you, what you do, hear more, learn more? Right. So I don't have a collective place to learn about me. That's not what it is. But if you want to learn more about CORE, there's CORETORA.org. CORE was taken by the Council on Racial Equality. So it's CORETORA, <laughs> CORETORA, T-O-R-A-H, C-O-R-E-T-O-R-A-H.org. I'm sure if you had to share the name, not bad, right? <laughs> it's kind of along, along your values. So, um, so it's CORETORA.org to learn more about the organization CORE. I also have a personal website, which I do not keep up and have not added anything to in several years. Nevertheless, there's hundreds of hours of classes on it. And that's a bite of Torah.com because I just have a bite, not the whole thing, but I'm happy to share the bite that I have. So a bite like a cookie, a bite of Torah.com for historic classes. And then there's a few things floating around on YouTube. I don't have a YouTube channel. Maybe I do. I think I do because I have a few subscribers, but like, it's not something I like post and look at. It's going to become the core um, YouTube at some point. I just have to migrate some things over. So there are a few things around. And that's just the way it can is. Can people like, contact you through your website? People can contact me through my website or um, or they can WhatsApp me or email me. And you can find that on my website. Um, so I'll let you look there. <clears throat> and and the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yes. That's the truth. Because um, sometimes I get a lot of requests and, and I answer as much as I can. And if I don't answer right away. So if you just email again and say, hey just following up, you'll probably get an answer. Mm -hmm. So, um, this was amazing. What a, treat. what a treat, not only to just, you know, do this with you, but to be with you in person, really a special treat and a, such a treat for all of our listeners. Um, I know how many incredible nuggets they're all going to take away from this class, this yeah. podcast. Thank you for joining us. Wishing you so much and bracha and success in the future. Thank you. Thanks. Amen. Yeah. You too. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.